Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The company selling Mission Chips is suing Mission Taco Joint, alleging a trademark infringement. Will they be able to stop this local restaurant's success story from using the Mission Taco name? And what about the sex offender who's filed a lawsuit against the state of Missouri? He wants to strike down the law that forces sex offenders to post signs telling trick-or-treaters to stay away on Halloween. Could that be a violation of his First Amendment rights? Those are big legal questions with big repercussions in St. Louis. And joining us today to make sense of them and much more is our legal roundtable. And today, that includes Connie McFarlane Butler. Connie is a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, and in 2010, she founded her own firm, the law office of Connie McFarlane Butler, and that is in Florissant. Connie, welcome. Good morning, or afternoon. Afternoon. (laughs) And we're also joined today by Sarah Swadish. She's a labor and employment attorney who is in private practice at the law office of Sarah Swadish. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. And last but not least, today we're joined by none other than Beavis Shock. He practices in Clayton at Shock Law. Beavis, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. So Thomas Sanderson lives in Hazelwood. He was convicted of statutory rape all the way back in 2006. Well, last year, police paid him a visit on Halloween. They said he'd violated the state law that requires people on the sex offender registry to post a sign stating no candy or treats at this residence. He says that's a violation of his First Amendment rights. Connie, I guess maybe the first question is, do sex offenders have First Amendment rights? Well, technically, we we all have First Amendment rights, and uh, the First Amendment uh, includes the right to speak as well as not to speak. Uh, However, our First Amendment rights are not limitless. Uh, The Supreme Court has indicated that, you know, you don't have the right to say anything that you choose if it will cause lawlessness or if it is, in fact, obscene. So there are restrictions on First Amendment rights. And so for this guy, do you think he potentially has a case here saying, I shouldn't have to put out this sign? They can't force me to say, trick-or-treaters, stay away. Uh, I I think that, uh, as I understand it, uh, the 11th Circuit uh, has addressed this issue previously and has indicated that uh, this particular type of sign is, in fact, a violation of the sex offender rights. Uh, In uh, this particular case, we'll see what the Eighth Circuit does with it. Uh, In this particular case, you know, the public does have a right uh, uh, to be protected and to know that a sex offender lives at a specific address. Uh, However, in this particular case, in in, in this instance, the sign that that, uh, he's being asked to put up, uh, under the state statute that the the legislature passed, uh, he's only required to put that sign up on October. 31st. Hmm. So only on Halloween. And as I understand it, this gentleman has a big elaborate Halloween display. He's been putting this display up for 20 years. And uh, he consulted with the police department previously and asked whether or not this was a violation of the law. And they told him basically he was grandfathered in because his eviction or that his conviction had occurred prior to uh, this new law being passed. He went back in 2012 and talked to the police 
uh, chief uh, uh, at the Hazelwood Department and asked once again whether or not this display or his activities on Halloween were in violation of the state statute. And once again, he was assured that it was not in violation. And uh, there are also some indications that the local fire department actually hosted a trick-or-treating event outside of this elaborate display at his home. Uh, so although I'm not sympathetic to what he was previously convicted of, he did reach out and seek out advice and he was misled. Yeah, this is somebody who was trying to be in compliance. Right. Sounds like a pretty good record of that here. And as you're saying, there is another circuit that has said this law that Missouri has may not stand. Sarah, is it simple enough that he's going to be able to win this in court? I absolutely think so, right? The the constitutional right to free speech implies the corollary, the right to be free from speech, whatever that speech may be. The 11th Circuit case that Connie referred to is a case called Sutherland versus Butts County. Kind of an unfortunate name for this case. Uh, but the sheriff got the sex offender registry list, went around the county putting yard, signs and yards that simply said, no trick-or-treaters. Hmm. It wasn't uh, overly offensive language. It just said no trick-or-treaters. Uh, the sheriff and the county were sued, uh, and the three sex offenders in that case won. So, yes, it was just a one-day sign, but that doesn't matter. The government doesn't get to force you. They cannot compel any speech. It's interesting. This kind of ties into that very controversial case out of Colorado where the Supreme Court is saying, well, you can't make someone say congratulations on your wedding day to somebody if they don't want to say that. Do you see some, some resonance here where the Supreme Court may say, yeah, this is compelled? Judges are uh, human beings who care about what people say to them and about them they don't want a case in which the sign comes down and it turns out that the sex offender is actually setting the whole thing up to offend again and does so, and that is the nightmare of nightmare. Every judge doesn't want that. I mean, take some criminal, put him on probation, goes back out and shoots somebody, that's bad for the judge. And, and I, I think there is wiggle room for the courts in this case, they can say, well, it's such a serious matter. We're not, we're, we're just going to have to let that sign be. Um, there's some, uh, there's some rules about content based, which is what this is. It's a content based restriction. So it's presumptively unconstitutional. <laughs> there has to be a very, what's called narrow tailoring about the rule. Um, I, I think they could easily make him put that sign up because they're going to say, oh, the harm is so great, and it's directly related to the problem, kids I, coming over. So I, I may be wrong. I don't think it's clear. But. Well, well I, I think the statute that it, uh, as it is currently written is problematic. Uh, it's Missouri Revised Statute 589.5 or 426, and it indicates that on the 31st day of the year, any person who's registered as a sex offender must post a sign at his or her residence stating no candy or treats at this resident residence. Uh, the statute does not say where the sign has to be posted. So if I post it in the restroom of my residence, am I in compliance? The sign does not say that it has to be prominent, prominent, 
prominently displayed in the front yard or on the front door. It doesn't give any indication of where the sign has to be posted. It doesn't indicate, you know, that the sign has to even be a certain size. So if he, you know, goes to his computer and takes an eight and a half sheet of paper and prints no candy or treats at this resident in 10 point font and then, you know, sticks that on his mailbox where no one could actually read it, is he in compliance with the statute? I think that the statute itself is problematic and it leaves a lot of wiggle room for individuals who are trying to avoid and evade. You know, it's interesting. It does sound like there's a way he could have maybe more quietly handled this, but it sounds like he wants to be the test case on this. There's a national group involved litigating this on his behalf. One of the things the Missouri Attorney General has raised is that when Hazelwood police came and busted him for this party, um, that he did plead guilty to that low-level citation or, or violation in April. He was sentenced to a year of probation. The Attorney General is saying that's the time that he needed to raise that First Amendment case, not a proactive lawsuit. Beavis, you handle a lot of these civil rights type claims. Do you think the attorney general has a good point there? I think I think that's a loser. Uh, I mean, I think the guy can raise it whenever he's ready to raise it. And, I, and now is, is the allegation that he is giving out candy? This, uh, the tipsters it, indicated that a sex offender was actually handing out candy on Halloween. Well, so does, that's the, what he was arrested so for. So does the statute say no candy here and he's giving out candy? Or does the statute say they have to have a sign and there is no candy? Well, the statute says that a sex offender has to avoid all Halloween-related contact with children on October 31st of each year. Okay. So if he's in direct contact with the children handing out the candy, then he is in violation of the statute. And then the statute goes on further to say about the lights on the outside of the house must be turned off, that the sex offender must actually be inside of the home unless he has you know, reasonable cause, such as work or somewhere that, that he has to be, uh, and, uh, and he can't leave the home, I believe between 5 and to 10.30, somewhere thereabout. So this is all very complicated, very interesting stuff. Uh, You may have a question about this for our panel. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Sarah, you wanted to jump in there. No, I I was just going to fill in uh, any gap on the statute, but Connie nailed it. I I, I think the Eighth Circuit is likely to follow the Eleventh Circuit. I suppose they could uphold the statute and try to create a circuit split to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. But this doesn't strike me as the kind of case, sort of limited issue, what can we tell people to say on particular days that the Supreme Court's going to be interested in. Okay. Now, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey, he's in the news, not just for defending the state restrictions on sex offenders. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reports he filed a brief that helps the Doe Run Corporation. Well, soon thereafter, he was given a $50,000 campaign donation by Doe Run. Now, attorneys for Doe Run's opponents say that either Bailey's amicus brief should be tossed or he should have to amend the brief to include information about that donation. Beavis, in in your understanding, is there any legal precedent for an attorney general having to make that kind of disclosure to be forced to add this to an amicus brief? Well, first of all, now that it's in the news, there's nothing to add because everybody knows. So that's a waste of time. Uh, I I think this is very bad for him politically. Um, I I mean, I just, 
I can only imagine as we go forward in the campaign between now and the, and the primary in the summer that they're just going to hammer on the guy because there is a, a, an appearance of impropriety here. And I think it's a serious one. And I, I mean, I wonder if there's a whistleblower out there who might know about a phone call that took place. Hey, Mr. Bailey, we would love to support you. And that's not because we think you're going to take a position that we like, but we just think you're a heck of a good guy and we want to support good government. Long pause. <laughs> That's, yeah. that's how those things work. <laughs> is that how those things work? I that never, is how those things I work. I never get to be in those telephone conversations. And that is terrible because that's not how things should work. So, I mean, you feel like this black eye is warranted. This is not the liberal media going after our Republican attorney general. Sarah, that is how things work. So your desire that that is how things don't work is a wasted effort in humanity's <laughs> history. Fair. Uh, but I mean, it, it, it is it is this a severe black mark on Bailey, and uh, I think I think he's going to have problems with this from now until we get to the uh, primary. He does have a Republican opponent, uh, Will Sharf, running against him. Will will probably be bringing this up. Sarah, I find myself wondering though, you know, this friend of the court filing or amicus brief that the Missouri Attorney General made. It came after U.S. District Court judge had already denied the motions for summary judgment. Um, Doe Run appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Is this something where the Eighth Circuit is even going to care that the Missouri Gen Attorney General weighed in? Does this help Doe Run significantly to have this amicus brief in hand? I don't think so. I mean, Holly, Doe Run apparently made the same request to Holly. He rejected it. Uh, they made the same request to Schmidt to file an amicus. He rejected it. I and just, when you say they made the request, they didn't say, we'll give you 50K for writing this brief. They correct. just wanted the brief written. They wanted the brief written, correct. I, I'm not suggesting that they bribed or corrupted, you know, attempted anything like that. Um, but they requested it from the prior attorneys general, and they declined it. So getting this from Bailey, it's already on the eighth, up in the Eighth Circuit. I, I just don't think it I – don't, I don't think the Eighth Circuit's going to be persuaded – yeah, so this looks so bad for Bailey. Um, we're all talking about this here. And then maybe this is an amicus brief that doesn't even matter. Do you think he behaved unethically in accepting this 50K, even if it was totally unrelated to this brief that he filed? Well, I would say that it certainly is suspicious timing. Uh, and it's questionable uh, at, uh, uh, at the very least. Um, uh, with, you know, th this particular, you know, matter... Um, I think that in their brief, they indicated that it was important for the Missouri Attorney General's office to weigh into this case because the public had an interest in ensuring that, uh, you know, litigation, that the courts of um, Missouri weren't used for litigation improperly, that mm -hmm. wasting Missouri taxpayer dollars uh, in order to pursue this case in the state of Missouri. And I think that that type of argument, if the state were going to weigh into it, then that should have been filed when the case was first initiated, when it was first filed. That's when you raise the issue of wasting Missouri taxpayer money to fund this lawsuit. So I, once again, I think the timing of it is suspicious. If uh, Missouri really had a dog in that fight, then it should have been done when the case was first filed. So like I said, it's, it's bad timing. So maybe they should have gotten to Hawley or Schmidt more effectively, however, right. whatever their entreaty was. Uh, we do have a question that came in from a call. Patrick from St. Louis, uh, wondering about the sex offender case that we just discussed. He wonders, did Hazelwood warn him, give him the opportunity to follow the law when they busted this party last year? Or did the police
least just show up and arrest him. Connie, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you do know the answer to that question. From what I have learned online about the case, uh, it appears that there was no warning that was given. Like I said, he indicates that he reached out twice Mm -hmm. uh, for direction and guidance from the police department because this was a big elaborate display that drew hundreds of people each night. Uh, leading up to Halloween and on Halloween as well. So it appears that a number of individuals called the police department and said, hey, we have a sex offender who is actually handing out candy. It does not appear to me from my research that there was any warning that was given to this gentleman. Well, thank you, Patrick, for that question. And if anybody has questions as our panel continues uh, to discuss these cases today, we're at 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. And you can always find us on Twitter at STL on Air. We're going to have to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk about lawsuits over cannabis taxes. And after that, we will get to Mission Taco Joint versus Mission Chips. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Shaw, hosting our legal roundtable. So, going back to our discussion, now that cannabis is legal in Missouri, consumers are spending $100 million every month on cannabis. And when I look at my young employees and the people around me, it completely makes sense. Uh, They are also paying a lot of taxes as they enjoy this cannabis. So now dispensaries in two different Missouri counties are challenging the taxes that are being assessed. Uh, Both St. Louis County and Buchanan County tax cannabis on top of the taxes being charged by local municipalities within their borders. So in Florissant, for example, dispensaries are now taxed at nearly 15%, 14.988%. In unincorporated St. Louis County, if you just drove, say, a mile away and you're in just the county, not in the city of Florissant, it might be more like 11%. So these dispensaries are suing. The Missouri Cannabis Trade Association calls the stack taxes, quote, an unconstitutional money grab that violates the Missouri Constitution and the will of the voters. Sarah Swadish, is that a fair conclusion looking at the letter of the law? I think that the double tax or stack tax is probably permissible. Really? Yeah, I I pulled the the constitutional amendment, and I have it in front of me. It states the governing body of any local government is authorized to impose an additional sales tax, an amount not to exceed 3%. Hmm. So then we go look at the definition of what is local government, and it means in the case of an incorporated area, a village, town, or city, and in the case of an unincorporated area, a county. I think the and tells us that there can be the double tax. They can each get their little 3%. They can each get their 3%. That's how I would read the and. So something I find interesting about this case, we know what the drafters of this constitutional amendment were thinking. This is not something where we have to go back to the U.S. Constitution and trying to figure out what the heck was going on in the 1700s. This just happened a few years ago. These people are among us, and they say, we did not want to have these taxes stacked. But it sounds like, based on what Sarah just read us, they used 
used imprecise language in trying to get there. So Beavis, does their intent matter or do we have to rely on the plain language of the law? Well, I think we, we, we rely on the plain language. It's important to recognize a lot of people think that the use of the constitutional amendment process on this 30-page bill about marijuana was an improper use of the constitutional levers. I completely agree with that. They should have just had one sentence, pot is legal. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting here, though, is if, if the taxes get too high, then the black market will come in and fill. So that they, sure. they, the people who are imposing taxes have to understand that that causes what's called elasticity of price. It's an economic concept that when the price goes up, demand goes down. So there, are, there always are gonna be uh, people who sell pot on the black market for less and not within the regular structures of nice pretty buildings with signs that says cannabis today. And so they just say on the street corner uh, on the QT, hey, I got some dope, you want some? Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that's I mean, where, that, it, that's it, where it goes. Today, that's where know? it goes if yeah. the taxes get too high. Yeah, so they're creating kind of this problem. But I want to go back to your idea that we should have just maybe um, voted on a one-sentence constitutional amendment saying cannabis is now legal in the state of Missouri. Who would have had to work out the details on this? This would have come down to, to state bureaucrats. I mean, I think that's precisely what the uh, cannabis uh, crowd wanted to avoid. Oh, well, the cannabis crowd wanted to have certain people make money, and that's what they've, I'm sure, accomplished. Uh, that's my view of it. There's a, whenever something's 30 pages long, somebody's in, a, in on it somewhere that's going to work out for them personally. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I just, all, all criminal, if they just said pot is legal, that would have made it so that the criminal statutes against pot would have been non-criminal. And then it would be like selling, I don't know, tortillas at Schnucks. Nobody cares. Just sell yeah. your tortillas. Oh, Get somebody on cares about tortillas well, at Schnucks. Yeah, that's we are about to talk about that. That's an excellent point. That's just though. a setup for the as we go forward. <laughs> so we're talking about, um, you know, this question of we've got two different lawsuits here. There's one in Buchanan County, one in St. Louis County. They're suing different people in St. Louis County. They're suing the State Department of Revenue as well as the county. In Buchanan County, they sued the county collector. Connie, is it possible we could end up with two different rulings here and that some people may be able to stack their taxes and some can't. Uh, it's possible that you could end up with two different rulings. Ultimately, I suspect that someone's going to appeal it to the uh, the Missouri Supreme Court, and then the court will weigh in on it and then resolve the issue for all. Okay. Well, we're going to have to watch this one as it plays out. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the plain language of the statute prevails, because it does seem pretty cut and dry when I hear Sarah reading it to us just now. Uh, let's talk about the latest coming from the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. This was a, a big topic on this show uh, five months ago, uh, Kim Gardner was still in office. It felt like the wheels were maybe coming off the wagon of justice in the city of St. Louis um, by the time that she left that office. Now, Gabriel Gore took the job on May 30th, but there are many cases that were handled by Gardner that continue to work their way through the system. One case involves a double murder in the city's central West End. Seven-year-old Demaya Fleming and her father were shot to death near St. Louis University. Uh, last week, a man named Javon Nettles pleaded guilty and was sentenced to just 10 years in prison. With time served, he'll be out in eight years. And unsurprisingly, the family of this little girl is just positively livid. Beavis was justice served in this case. Uh, is this is this the one where the officer wouldn't testify? Is this that... is a different one, yeah. Okay. This um, is one where, you know, the defense attorney said there was just so many errors that were made during Kim Gardner's tenure that there's just not a way we could get a better case out of this. Well, 
the biggest problem that the, that the circuit attorney has is a triage problem. They have bad cases. They have good cases. They have cases with uh, uh, really bad outcomes for the victims and cases without such bad outcomes for the victim. And the former, what I mean is cases with strong evidence and cases with not strong evidence. So you can put every case into a box. And the ones to focus on are the ones where there's a bad outcome for the victim and there's good evidence. Nothing happened in that office for years. So the, when, when, when the circuit attorney says, we're going to cut a deal on this one, if, if that's because the evidence is weak, I, I think that's how it goes. I mean, it's just they're so beset with time and pressure. And I don't know how many jury trials are doing down there because they haven't been down there. But that's they're doing a, a lot. Yeah, that's something to watch. So that's my opinion. We all want justice to be perfect. And sometimes justice isn't perfect. Right. In this case, the prosecutor's office mishandled so badly that this guy may have walked free. And so the justice is he gets 10 years. Yeah. Right. It is not a perfect justice and it is tragic in every single way, but it is better than him walking free. And so are we pleased at 10 years? No, but it is the it is the justice we got. Boy, I mean, you said that you said that poignantly. It's interesting that in this particular case, there were some well-known names involved in this plea deal. Mary Pat Carl, who twice ran against Kim Gardner, she was the primary opponent. Um, she came back to work under Gabriel Gore. She was the prosecutor who made this plea deal. It was accepted by Judge Mike Noble, who called the circuit attorney's office under Kim Gardner a quote rudderless ship of chaos. These were Gardner's biggest critics. It's interesting to think how hard they would have blasted Gardner if this deal had happened on her watch. Can they blame her for this, Connie, or do they need to own this? Well, I I think that uh, there were a lot of issues in this case. I mean, um, I, I know it's hard to stomach that an individual can kill two people, including a seven-year-old little girl, and uh, only get 10 years and be required to serve 85% of that sentence and then get time off for time served. I mean, that's hard to stomach. However, there were a lot of problems and issues in this case. This case was filed and then it was dismissed twice and refiled. And uh, the defendant in the case sat in jail for over 10 years. And uh, there were various orders that were I think were it was issued. four years, but, but it was not, quite sorry, some 10. time. I'm yeah. sorry, I apologize. Yeah. It was not 10, no. uh, over two, it, from two, at least two at from, least two. from, from yeah. uh, my reading of the facts. Uh, so that it was problematic. And uh, I think that there was so much news about the chaos uh, going on in that office that if they would have taken it, taken it to trial, because it was supposed to go to trial, I believe next week, if they had taken it to trial, and with the public knowing all that they know about what happened in that office and uh, the, the allegations of prosecutorial misconduct and not turning over evidence that the court ordered them to turn over, that they did run the risk of this gentleman walking free and being acquitted. So uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, is it justice in all eyes? Uh, I think that they had to, you know, as the saying go, they had to sp split the baby uh, to do what was in the best interest of the prosecutor's office and then get some level of justice for the victims in the case. 
So Gabriel Gore has now been in office for five months, inherited something that was a very tricky situation. It seems like people are, are starting to feel that things are moving in the right direction. I mean, are we still going to be faced with things like this, though, for years to come as they continue to go through these old case files? Uh, I, I think that at least for the, the next year or so, he's probably going to have some of these issues because this case was, I believe, dismissed as late as uh, April 5th of this year and then refiled. Uh, so, um, so yeah, there are a lot of cases that are still in the pipeline and his attorneys and, and he's, you know, he's really gotten to work to uh, bring back a lot of the experienced attorneys back into the office and attorneys who uh, are competent. And so I think that ultimately the, the office is going to get back on track. However, they're going to have some hurdles along the way. I'm actually going to go back to the phone lines, and I do want to let you know, if you want to join our conversation, we're at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Our caller is bringing up a matter that we've talked about in previous months, and so this may be putting our panel somewhat uh, in the hot seat here, but I think there's a broader issue that he wants to ask about. This has to do with the controversy over at KDHX, our beloved community radio station. Uh, the current board chair was part of a group that, that that, uh, basically fired a whole bunch of DJs. And we've talked about the legal matters involving that. Uh, Chris, I believe, is on the phone line with a very specific question, and we'll see if we can get to an answer. Chris, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, I was curious if the DJs had grounds for any kind of defamation lawsuit, because the original reports to the media in the Post-Dispatch, and I believe on NPR's website, initially cited that these 10 DJs who were fired, that they were against diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, the new vision mm -hmm. of the radio station. And although the board president may not have named them specifically, the stories most certainly did. So do you think they have grounds for any legal action? Chris, thank you for that call. Um, I know that's something that, that people have questioned. So, yeah, the board chair said this group of people opposed our efforts on diversity, equity, inclusion. We had to fire them. He later did walk that back and say, eh, that okay, maybe that was an oversimplification of saying that. There have been people wondering, is there possibly a defamation case for him saying that? Now, he did not name them as individuals. He's talking about this group of DJs. Beavis, is that a case you'd take? Loser. <laughs> You're not going to bring that lawsuit. No, but I will tell you, on a, uh, to, I mean, there's no way. It's opinion. Nobody's named specifically. There's no case there. Maybe somebody else will disagree with me on the panel. I, I wouldn't take that. But I actually have written documentation for a, I, lo I looked up the bylaws, and I've written the notice, and if anybody on that board wants to do a uh, attempt to oust either uh, the chairman or the other, I've got the papers all done. So if there is controversy within the board, if there are board members who oppose what's going on, they need to get at least a majority and, and their new board members were selected. Um, if anybody wants the papers for a special meeting, just contact me. Wow. Beavis, are you offering your services for free here? I on regularly the air? do services for free. Wow. Well, I, <laughs> the work I, is done. Well, very interesting. So it sounds like not a good defamation case. And that's coming from the lawyer who has written paperwork to try to overthrow this board. So I don't know that either of our other panelists are going to disagree that they see a defamation claim here. I do. 
I don't either. All right. Well, Chris, that may not have been the answer you were looking for, but hey, there's a lawyer who's maybe interested in, in helping your cause. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. We do need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to talk about Mission Chips versus Mission Taco Joint. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Cha today, and I'm here with our Legal Roundtable. Now, the case everybody's been waiting for, uh, the company that makes Mission Tortilla Chips and Wraps is suing the beloved St. Louis-based restaurant Mission Taco Joint. They're accusing this local restaurant chain of unfair competition and trademark infringement. Connie, Mission Taco Joint has been operating under the name Mission Taco Joint since 2013. They have definitely built this brand in the St. Louis marketplace. How can these chip makers, tortilla makers, how can they sue them now? Well, um, just a little background. So uh, Mission, the tortilla maker, they've been in business. They originated, I believe, in Mexico, and they have been in business for 60 years, and they sell their product globally. Uh, The local Mission Taco Joint has been in business for 10 years, and it only, you know, their existence, according to Mission, the tortilla maker, uh, that the local taco vendor or restaurant only came to their attention when they went to a 2023 Tortilla National Convention. Uh, once the local taco restaurant got on their radar, then they filed this lawsuit in federal court claiming that there was trademark infringement and that there was unfair competition. Now, I think that there will be a lot of folks who will argue that if this restaurant has been in business for 10 years and you did nothing up until this point, that you have waived this argument of unfair competition, trademark infringement. Um, As uh, my friend uh, Beavis, we talked beforehand, uh, it's a concept called latches that, you know, you you have a time period by which to, to raise an argument. So I think that there is something to be said that this giant tortilla maker out of Mexico let this company exist for 10 years and did nothing about it. Now, they claim that it's unfair competition. And in my mind, if you'd never heard of them until you went to a taco convention, I have to really question how much competition they really are for you. Uh, This is a local restaurant. As I understand it, they have eight uh, locations here in the metropolitan St. Louis area with a food truck. Uh, that it's simply a restaurant, that they're not selling uh, tortillas or tortilla chips on the shelves of the grocery stores like Mission out of Mexico. So for me, it just feels like a big corporate giant picking on the local little guy. So, Beavis, if these guys started trying to sell Mission-branded products uh, in the grocery stores, would that matter? Well, what I would focus on is whether the word Mission is alone the trademark, or is it Mission Tortilla? So Mission only has meaning with the word tortilla. And that's where I think Mission Taco wins this case. Uh, Because Mission Taco is two words together that have its own meaning. And 
one sell well, your hypothetical is that they start selling their their food in the store mm-hmm. as opposed to just being a restaurant which is completely different from selling tortillas in the store but i i still think that the word mission is not going to be sufficient unless it's combined with tortilla and then if it's combined with tortilla, then Mission Taco is something different, and Mission Taco wins. That's my call. So we have a caller who's on point here, I believe. Uh, Clint is calling from St. Louis. Clint, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thank you. I was wondering if Mission Tortilla has gone after any other restaurants, because you have out in San Francisco in the Mission District, there's over a half a dozen places that all have Mission in their name. And yeah. Would that, you know, so that that would I mean, Clint, I think that's that's a great question. I mean, Mission Taco Joint is not the first restaurant I've been to in my life that has Mission in the name and is serving Mexican food. Um, if they're not going after these other restaurants, you know, are they possibly creating this kind of latches situation there? Is that is that sort of summarizing what you're wondering? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Thank you for that question. Sarah, what do you think? Do they have to go after every single mission if they're going after these guys? Well, I, let's talk about what a trademark is for a moment. It can be a word or a symbol, right? And if th- there's different categories of protection for these trademarks. The first is if, it, if it's arbitrary, meaning Apple does not mean computer. So that is what they call an arbitrary symbol. It gets the most protection. Then you have... Um, a, suggest, a suggestive mark, which is like copper tone. It suggests a body lotion, a tanning lotion. So then that also gets a very high protection. And then you have a descriptive mark, uh, which would describe a product like all brand, or in this case, Mission Tortilla. But to get the protection, it has to have the secondary meaning. So it describes the, the, the product, but the community, the world, the consumers know it as something different than just the the description. So like like in this case, Mission Tortilla, the tortilla is describing it. It now has a secondary meaning, which is what Beavis was going for. And then the the last trademark concept is called generic. You can't trademark computer. (laughs) Too bad. Right, and so I think in this case, Mission Tortilla is going to argue that mission is arbitrary it's unique. It doesn't describe tortilla. And so therefore, Mission gets the highest protection. I think Mission Taco will argue that Mission <coughs> is a style of burrito on the West Coast. And so Mission is therefore a generic term that you can't trademark. You can't trademark computer. You can't trademark you know, car, you can't trademark mission. And so I think that's where there, I think that's where a lot of the argument will fall. And, and I, I, I think um, as far as the latches argument, you know, if they just discovered, if they just discovered that if Mission Tortilla just discovered that Mission Taco is existing, I don't think there's a latches argument. I don't think it's been abandoned. We all recall that we had St. Louis Bread Company Atlanta Bread Company sued for a very similar issue here, uh, which is the name St. Louis versus Atlanta, and St. Louis Bread Co. changed to Panera. They lost the argument. They could not expand as St. Louis Bread Co. outside of St. Louis. Correct. And, And similarly, if I started up Budweiser Bob down in Key West, Budweiser does not sell food 
It is not a bar, but I guarantee you if I opened up Budweiser Bar down in the Bahamas, Budweiser's going to sue me for taking their name Budweiser. So I actually think Mission Taco might be in a little bit of trouble here. Hmm. There's an idea called constructive knowledge, which is where you are assumed to know. So I'm wondering where the, the, the local distributor of Mission Tortillas is. They, whoever's working on that project, there's some warehouse somewhere. Why didn't the person who was running it or working there say, hey, what about this Mission Taco joint nine years ago? Yeah, and he should have flagged this. Should have flagged this. Then, I hope that person gets fired. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> my takeaway was, I know my family vacation next summer. It's the taco and tortilla convention. There you go. <laughs> that's, where the, that's where it's at. That's where we're headed. We heard from a number of people with thoughts on this case. Uh, Jeanette tweets, I find the lawsuit from Mission Chips against Mission Taco interesting. I've never confused the two. They have different logos. When I buy Mission Tortillas at Schnooks, I don't think it has anything to do with the local taco business. Sarah, does the different logos help them? They're not out there trying to confuse people. I don't think Mission Tortilla is is latched on to the logo. Like the Nike swoosh. Everybody knows what the swoosh is. I don't think Mission Tortilla is hanging their hat on their little Adobe sunset. Yeah. Right? They're hanging their hat on the word mission. And I think if Mission Taco had stayed a restaurant, there wouldn't be confusion. But I think as soon as they hit the schnooks shelves, there is a problem. And maybe in people in St. Louis don't confuse it. But I'm sure if you sold a mission margarita down in Georgia, they might think, oh, that's part of the mission tortilla mm -hmm. corporate. That's where the confusion comes in, not just here in St. Louis. Yeah. Well, and one tricky part of this, you know, I, I share Connie's sympathies that this does feel like they're picking on the little guy. But Mission Taco Joint has been growing. They're now in Kansas City. You know, they might next go to Los Angeles. The next thing you know, this is becoming a national brand. This, I don't know, could present a complication. We also heard from Brian who tweets, the mission suit reminds me of the historic Burger King suit from Mattoon, Illinois. Now, this is a fascinating one. The Burger King in Mattoon opened in 1954. They registered a trademark. Well, the first Burger King that would become the national chain, we all know, they opened that very same year in Florida. Gene and Betty Hoots, who were the owners of the one in Mattoon, they sued to get a court to say the national Burger King couldn't open any more franchises in Illinois because that violated their trademark. They didn't get that ruling, but they did get a ruling saying their trademark is valid, Burger King cannot open a franchise within 25 miles of Mattoon. They own that trademark. So maybe Mission Taco Joint should have proactively sued the Mission Chip Makers and said, stay out of our backyard. <laughs> Would that have been helpful here? I, I'll take the flip. I don't think Mission Tortilla is picking on the little guy. I don't think they're punching down, right? If Mission Taco opens in Atlanta, Austin, Minneapolis, and all of a sudden their food quality goes to garbage or they stop paying their their wages, all of a sudden the Mission Tortilla brand gets diminished because people are associating the Mission Taco restaurant with the Mission Tortilla brand. And if I'm a stockholder of Mission Tortilla, I, I got some I got some podunk Mission Taco ruining my stock price, right? Like I want to protect I want to protect my product. I want to protect my price. I don't while they might be punching down, I think they have a reason to protect their brand. <laughs> well, this uh, it's its interesting to know that this might not be so simple. Connie, I'm going to maybe give you the last word here. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the key is, is there, is there confusion amongst the consumer? 
That mm-hmm. is the question. Yeah. And mission, it's not just mission taco, they're mission. And then they sell all of these various uh, Mexican uh, related products, Mexican food related products. I don't think there's any confusion with mission based out of Mexico and mission taco joint. I don't think that consumers will be confused. And even if Mission Taco Joint is selling margaritas, I'm not aware of Mission out of Mexico selling margaritas on the store shelves. Mm -hmm. If Mission Taco Joint moves into the arena of packaging tortillas and tortilla chips and selling them uh, uh, at Schnucks or Deerberg's, then I think that there is an infringement problem. So there's one last case I wanted to make sure that we would get to today. This involves Jeff Rurda. Um, he was the business manager of the St. Louis Police Officers Association, a very prominent spokesman, very controversial. The mayor said she would refuse to give him a seat at her table. Well, last year, the union told him to take a hike. He's now suing for breach of contract. He's arguing he should be paid everything they'd owe if he had still been working the job for the whole past year. But here's what is somewhat confusing to me. At the time they let him go, he was not under contract. The parties had been interviewed at the time. Uh, You know, this was a very prominent spokesman. They said they'd opted not to renew because he was running for office. And this was just this formality. Maybe they'd renew down the line. Well, then he lost. They never inked a new contract. And then months later... They told him to take a hike. So, Sarah Swadish, you're a labor and employment lawyer. Can you sue for breach of contract if you're not actually under contract? Well, I pulled the contract, and it has an automatic renewal provision that unless either of the parties say that they don't want the contract to renew in writing 60 days before it expires, it automatically renews. And so... You know, maybe they thought the contract didn't exist, but since neither party triggered the the triggered it being canceled or not renewed, this thing did renew. And interestingly enough, there's a contract, there's a provision in here that says um, that Mr. Rorta cannot do anything ad- to the adverse interest of the union, uh, but this does not include running for office. Oh, interesting. So the contract actually contemplates that he will run for an elected position and he's allowed to do so. So I, I don't know what they were saying back two years ago when he was running for office, but this contract specifically contemplates that he's allowed to run for office and it, the contract won't be uh, stalled, delayed, canceled. Okay, so here's a follow-up question for you. You said they had to put this in writing under the terms of the contract that they were canceling the contract. What if nobody bothered to put it in writing, but they're there, they're talking. They're like, yeah, Jeff, okay, we're not going to renew this contract. They're telling the Post-Dispatch, we haven't renewed this contract. The guy's running for office. That doesn't count. Having the Post-Dispatch print that they're not renewing the contract, it doesn't count unless they put it in writing to him. Uh there's a specific provision that covers it. It says amendments may only, this contract may only be amended uh, in written form, meaning there's no waiver, right? If you want to amend it and release the parties from given written notice of the canceling of the contract, you got to put it in writing. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's a tough case for Mr. Rorta, but... Um, but he has a case here. I, I, I think he's entitled to discovery, Right. I think he's entitled to discovery on what they said and what emails were exchanged and what text messages were exchanged. What was actually so in I, writing. I, yeah. I, I don't think this is a I don't think this is a malicious lawsuit. I don't think it's a laughable lawsuit. I don't know if I would have taken it. 
Um, but he, I, I've read the contract on its face. I mean, there's always yeah. more behind the curtain, sure. but, but this curtain suggests... I guess this is why, uh, you know, we can't just say, oh, yeah, we told him it was canceled. You have to hire a lawyer to read the fine print. I hate that about America. Connie, any last thoughts on this one? Well, the contract specifically states that they have to provide 60 days notice prior to the end of the first term of the contract. The initial term of the contract ended April 29, 2022. So 60 days prior to that, they were required to provide notice. They did not provide notice. Therefore, the contract automatically self-renewed for two years so i do think he has a case wow beavis there may, there, well he may get in a little trouble for sitting on his hands just like in the earlier case if 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 this thing if he hasn't been paid since april 22 and now he shows up in october of 23 with a few months to go on his country you got to pay me for the last 18 months if i were the judge i'd say no 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 you're too late pal he should have piped up earlier and said, I'm here doing the work. Well, well he was on paid leave, uh, I believe, through September 14th of 2022. So after the initial term of the contract, then they told him they weren't bringing him back. And then he received pay up through September 30th of 2022. So hmm. uh, so he was getting paid. He's, he's only asking for pay from October of 2022 through the duration of the contract. So somebody was paying him post the initial uh, term for the contract. And on that note, unfortunately, Beavis, can't let you have the last word. I got to end this show. Connie McFarland Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarland Butler, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Beavis Shock of Shock Law, thank you. Thank you. And Sarah Swadish of the Law Office of Sarah Swadish, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Sarah Vinsky. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.